Welcome to Trending in Education. Mike Palmer here. Very happy to be joined by Mordecai Brownlee, who's got a really interesting backstory, and he's working at St. Philip's College out of San Antonio, Texas. I would prefer to hear in Mordecai's own words who he is and where he comes from. But to begin, I just want to welcome him. Mordecai, welcome to Trending in Education. Hey, Mike. Thank you so much for having me, and it's an absolute honor to be here and uh, representing St. Phillips College, San Antonio, Texas, part of the Alamo College system. We're celebrating 122 years of existence. We are the only dual-designated, federally-designated HBCU that is a HSI in the nation. We take great pride in that. And also, I have the uh, pleasure of teaching for two institutions, additional institutions, uh, Morgan State University, uh, their Community College Leadership Master's Program, as well as University of Charleston, their School of Business and Leadership, and also had the honor of serving as a higher ed columnist for EdSurge. Yeah, and the EdSurge piece in particular, I think, is one of the ones that we're going to want to dive into. You recently wrote an article about financial literacy, which I think will be the, the thrust of our conversation. You also wrote another really interesting article about co-requirements as opposed to pre-requirements for developmental education. They're both really interesting reads, and I would recommend our listeners. We'll share out both those articles uh, in advance of this. As a primer, if you wanted to, to read up on those, they, they will be referenced. But before we get into that, I did want to get more of your origin story as a, a learning professional. Professional. How did you get to this point in, in your career? And then from there, I think we can jump into some of the, the new and emerging trends or the places where maybe you're trying to move the needle. Absolutely. So in terms of my story, uh, I'm originally from Toledo, Ohio, raised by a single mother. My mother was an educator. We had our sense of hardships. And as now they have a name for it, they call it housing insecurity. We had experienced that at one particular point in time. My mother was relentless in the sacrifices that she made to make sure that we made it to this point. Mm -hmm. And I'm grateful for that. And uh, I will tell you, we did a lot of moving around, Mike, growing up, a lot of moving around. And I think that in some ways it showed up academically when it was time to make the tr transition from K-12 into college. Mm -hmm. Due to some of the matters that were going on in our family and my mother's health at that time, I decided to stay local mm -hmm. and to home and worked full time while attending community college, mm -hmm. tested at developmental levels, having to go through that first reality of being told you have to understand what college ready means. And college ready doesn't mean that you have a high school diploma. That right. does not mean right. college ready. And that reality and having to learn that for the very first time, testing at developmental levels and, and then on top of that failing my developmental class. Right. Uh, uh, in math. And so really asking myself during that, that period, was I college material? Mm -hmm. And I think it was through my experience at that community college, which now they call it uh, Lone Star College. It was North Harris Community College District, Kingwood Campus at that time, but really getting around people that truly cared about me mm -hmm. uh, and working a work-study job, taking on an extra job and working work-study began to expose me to this idea of working at a college. Yeah, And the light bulb went off for me, Mike, and uh, fast forward, and we can go as far back as you want to, but fast forward, had my, my chance of working in residential life and academic advising and working in judicial affairs and working in, in emergency management, and, and just it just it grew. And I was able, by the time I knew it, to have a great portfolio that advanced me pretty quickly in my career. And now I've been serving here at St. Phillips going on almost five years, and yeah. it's just been an absolute honor and pleasure. Yeah. And it's always nice when talking to someone who's made their career in education to see how the roots uh, run deep and how in many ways it becomes a calling and it becomes a mission. 
And, uh, and that's very much what I'm hearing from you. Also, just to clarify too, the HSI is the Hispanic serving. That's institute. correct. So can, can you just expand on that a little bit, just in case folks haven't heard? I think most folks have heard of HBCUs, but not as many folks HSI. have heard of HSIs. Very good. No, very good. And, and so it's an absolute uh, pleasure to be able to serve, again, at the nation's only dual designated federally. And the reason that it's important to note is because the federal designations essentially cover ground on some key definitions. Hispanic serving institutions can be both community colleges and four-year institutions. And the dual designation really sets up on the requirement that at least 25% of your student body, that includes full-time and part-time, that they are at least of Hispanic Latin uh, origin uh, from a demographic standpoint. So by clearing that, that requirement, enables institutions to be able to apply through the federal government department of education to receive such a designation and then again saint philip's college was founded as a school for emancipated female slaves to teach him how to cook and so back yeah. in 1898 so then there goes the hbcu status so the significance of us we're no longer a primary black serving institution we're historic roughly 12 percent of our population is is black african-american but yeah. over 60 percent is hispanic mm -hmm. Yeah, and, and also urban, urban San Antonio. That's right. Yeah. That's yeah. right. And then something I remember, because we've been having these types of conversations in the past, I remember you also talked about the level to which poverty comes into play, because I think frequently when folks begin with an HBCU cut or an HSI perspective, that is one lens, but the other lens really that cuts across all demographics, as I understand it, is poverty. And that when you're serving students who may maybe food insecure, maybe housing insecure. That was the other aspect of your origin story that I heard very much from you in terms of your mission at St. Philip's. I'd love to hear you talk a little more about that. Yeah, Mike, a lot of people don't know, and it's shocking when I share it with them, that San Antonio, Texas, which San Antonio tends to be a, a great conference location. Yeah. Uh, for those that are familiar with San Antonio, nine times out of 10, it's because a conference that they've attended mm -hmm. has come through San Antonio. And that was my first exposure to San Antonio was attending an advising uh, conference on Nakata. So, so now living here, it astounded me to learn that San Antonio, Texas is the most impoverished metropolitan city in the country. Mm -hmm. Years ago, surpassed Detroit on that metrics. And so when you look at the economic segregation that's within this community and you look at the hardships being faced on a grand scale here in San Antonio, Texas, when we talk about community college, when we talk about education, this is truly the instrument, the tool to be able to alleviate and to address poverty, generational poverty, generational ignorance, and social and economic mobility in this community. And we yeah. understand that and we know that. So collectively, we are doing everything that we can, partnering with our ISDs, Alamo Colleges, St. Phillips College, to do what we can to address these opportunities within our community. And it's just an honor to serve. Matter of fact, today, as we're recording this, Mike, the reason why I came up here to the college is because in about two hours, we're going to have a San Antonio food bank drop here at this college. Mm -hmm. So being able to put on the gloves, put on the mask, suit up and get food out to those who are in need, uh, being able to get resources and social services out to those who are in need. Again, that's part of the fabric of what we do and we're committed to doing that work to really pull San Antonio up. Yeah, yeah, it's fantastic. It's it's amazing stuff and thank you for your service. This is the, the kind of essential work, almost definitionally essential work that you're doing. And then particularly in a, 
a campus and a college that is serving its community. It's very much reminiscent of community-based education, which is something you hear a lot about in K-12, but the, the place where higher ed uh, post-secondary seems to pick up the baton from that community-based education in K-12 is frequently around these urban community colleges. Uh, and also rural poor is a related idea where smaller community colleges, just the geography becomes uh, yeah. different in those contexts. But importance of social mobility to the mission of your university, the importance of, of removing barriers is another piece that I, that I think we want to get into. So I think all this does ultimately tie to the concept of financial literacy. But before we get there, the, the other thing you mentioned was you face challenges yes. uh, around being put in a developmental, now it's called developmental, it's also historically been called remedial. That's right. Um, and there's been a lot of work to be done to reimagine and reframe what was traditionally the, the prerequisite approach to remedial education, which would really prevent access and limit inclusion. And you wrote beautifully about this in one of the Ed Surge articles that we're going to share. But can you expand a little bit on the, the distinctions around developmental education and the trend that I think is a good one, which is towards uh, a co-requisite as opposed to a, a prerequisite model? Yeah, yes, Mike. What I'll tell you is, is and uh, you began talking about this, the industry, higher ed as a whole, for years, treated remedial education as a subpar population. A, 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 a population of individuals who just weren't good enough. However, if you could cross such a threshold, then you would be admitted into college level courses. And while I want to be very clear and say that I do see the significance, I personally, due to my story, understand the significance in being able to address the gap in learning and understanding yeah. uh, on key areas of mathematics, which sets the foundations for so many yeah. uh, concentrations, writing, reading, yeah. being able to truly understand and be able from not just a liberal arts standpoint, but from a communication standpoint, from an intellectual and interpersonal, as well as external communications. These are key pieces that you need mm -hmm. in terms of your journey, no matter what you're doing. Yeah. I get that. So I want to preface that. Now, with that said, remedial education, and it was proven over time when they looked at the data of how many students nationwide were being caught in the nets of remedial education. They weren't able to make it through. And it wasn't necessarily because they weren't good enough. It, it could have been the instructor. It could have been how the material was being approached. It yeah. could have been um, elements that just, there was no, no, no foundation for that individual despite coming through the K-12 system yeah. that it was being approached in the same manner. And then yet we still have to address this reality that in so many communities around our country, the higher education powers within that community are not in sync with the K-12 powers within yeah. that community. Mm -hmm. So when you talk about a streamlined approach of being able to walk from point A to point B seamlessly, yeah. those realities don't necessarily exist. Mm -hmm. Then add on top of that, someone may be coming in as a transplant from another state, <laughs> from another community that doesn't necessarily have a strong tax base, doesn't yeah. necessarily have strong resources. So these are all realities that are being faced in the classroom. So to go back to remedial education, over time, it was proven uh, statistically that in, either individuals weren't able to make it out of remedial ed education into the college readiness of things, or it took them so long yeah. to get from remedial education into the college placement that at that point, they were behind the ball. And right. here in the state of Texas, 
Texas, the Texas Higher Education Coordinating Board released a study that said, hey, if y'all didn't know this, for students attempting to receive a two-year degree from your community colleges in the state of Texas, it's taken six years to do it. Mm. What's going on? You've got to address this. You must address this. So there began to be a national movement years ago to put pressures legislatively on the community college systems, really, to be quite honest, I'm focusing on community college, but it was higher education, but it was community college because it was the community colleges that were in that space really of doing the remedial work. Yes. To say, look, you've got to do something different here. What are you going to do? And they began essentially in a lot of cases to strip away the dollars that were being used to cover the expenses and the contact hours and the personnel and resource expenses associated with teaching the student at the remedial level. And so when that began to happen, it forced educators to either within those communities look at what to do to address these or legislatively, like here in the state of Texas, it was mandated that you begin to streamline. And herein comes this new reality of co-requisite, not prerequisite, and just understanding it's not necessarily, you got to clear this bar before you're let in. What does it look like for us to just totally remove the bar and say, we're going to teach your developmental piece, because now they're no longer using remedial uh, as a term, now developmental. What does it look like to teach this developmental piece along with your college level piece and begin to walk on this path together to put context, to synchronize the information and to streamline the information and to quickly get that individual into college ready and then onto completion because yeah. they are awaiting opportunities in the workforce and or waiting to get into uh, situations where they can transfer to four-year institutions. Mm-hmm. And you have to reduce the amount of semester credit hours towards completion. Right. What can we do? Streamline them, get them in, get them out, get them on to where they need to be. Right. And it saves the students money, it saves them time. It saves them a whole array of, of, of uh, potential implications, Mike. Yeah, there's a lot in there. I wasn't aware of this problem space, really. And then to understand how much better the co-requisite approach is, also in terms of the relevance of the developmental education. If this is why you need to know math, because you're in this economics class and you need to know math. So now if you want to be tutored on percentages, it's because... You're in an economics class, and if you want to take economics, you need to know it or any of those things. And that's where, to me, that leads naturally into the conversation about financial literacy, which in many ways, the building blocks around even developmental math frequently serve you in your life as well. So that if financial literacy is also baked into the mission of higher education and community colleges in particular, then teaching someone some developmental math concepts because they need to understand how to manage their financial lives that feels very student-centered and very much tied also to social mobility so Mm -hmm. i'd love to hear more about uh that article i'm very excited to hear (laughs) hear your perspective on the financial literacy side of the equation And, and i will tell you that even as we move from remedial developmental education Financial literacy, there's these conversations that have been outlier conversations for quite some time in the industry that now they have to become core conversations. Mm -hmm. Financial literacy is one of those, it must become a core conversation. And that's because your listeners may not know this, so many may not realize this, $1.7 trillion in student debt, Mike. Yeah, yeah. Our country has now amassed $1.7 trillion in student debt. Yeah. That is ridiculous. What is it that has now happened? within our country 
to where people in the midst of pursuing better for them and their families yeah. are taking on these loans in a manner in which just are insufficient, they're ineffective. Yeah. In so many cases, they're not warranted. And we can go on, on a whole nother game. And I decided not to take the article down that path. And one day I may pick it up because the question really becomes in a lot of these situations is who's relaying the information on the onset of, to these students of what their options really are. Right. And are the same conversations happening at point A and point B? And chances are they're not. Yeah. And so the question really becomes is what is the message that's being told to these prospective students wanting to come in do better, are we really talking to them about the scholarship opportunities? Right. Are we really talking to them about the pill opportunities? Are we really having a conversation saying, you know what, I know you're saying this is the school that you want to go to, mm -hmm. but I owe it to you to tell you that this school is too expensive for you. It's yeah. not that you're not good enough. Mm -hmm. It just doesn't make sense in your financial picture. And being able to have that kind of institutional integrity to have that kind of conversation with a person. One day I may go there, but I had I didn't in this article, Mike. Yeah. I just decided to approach it by the realities of saying student debt is amassed at a level that is just atrocious. It's, I, I would almost want to put the word criminal on it, yeah, but now yeah. the question becomes, what do we do to address it? And financial literacy, when you begin to trace this thing backwards, yeah. regression analysis on this, you begin to realize that, well, at one point in time, in its heyday in K-12, economics was taught in the classroom. Mm -hmm. Certain realities were taught in the classroom to prepare individuals leaving high school for productive citizenship, a trade, right. all these things. So now we're trying to figure out how to bring those learning opportunities back because they proved to be effective, but we took them, we stripped them away. Now let's bring them back, but then financial literacy has to make its way right. into the classroom. And I'm talking about as early as kindergarten, first grade. Right. What can we do to begin to train this future workforce to understand how a dollar moves, how to balance your checkbook, how to understand interest rates, mm -hmm. how to understand loans, how to understand how to save, how to understand how to invest. So you, you got a whole generation of folks coming out. You say NASDAQ and they're thinking, they don't know if you're talking about NASCAR or if they're talking, they don't know. And so if there's nobody in their household to teach them these realities, right. exactly, then they, you're have an entire generation that's going to be lost until they have that moment of enlightenment. And too often, in so many cases, that moment of enlightenment never comes. Yeah. Or it comes with dread when you realize, oh my God, what have I done? The thing that I really found interesting in your article was chronicling this with the, the subprime mortgage financial crisis that we we faced in 2008, which also in some ways can be attributed to some need for better financial literacy among mm -hmm. the, the folks who took on those loans, but That's also right. the predatory nature of those loans, which if you play that forward, there, there was a similar bubble in for-profit higher ed that became regulated to a certain extent, but that it's been a long time since a lot of that initially happened, and there's still this population of folks who are trying to make a decision, first person in their family to have to make these types of decisions. They're sold a bill of goods around this amazing experience you'll have if you go to the idealized four-year campus experience, but they can't necessarily understand, oh, and it's all going to be handled through loans, here you go. Yep. You could see how those power dynamics and the uh, information asymmetry that exists there could lead to bad decisions. And then if you combine that with the, this broad problem we have around some college, no degree, 
where yeah. many folks begin on that higher ed experience they go on that pathway because they, it seems like the right thing to do i just graduated from high school i should go to college but then they take on some of this debt load maybe they make a decision that didn't make sense for them then they're failing over into whatever they might do at a more local level i'm sure you see this all the time how is that reflected in what you're seeing in your day-to-day -day? here's the one thing i think that as educators anyone that's working with a population of students and i want them to hear me well it is so important that we educate our prospective students and students to understand especially now more than ever in the midst of covid in the midst of uh, stimulus check distributions or those who are not receiving these checks however they are still being impacted very negatively economically their livelihoods are being impacted yeah. hear me and hear me well as we still talk about student loan debt now is not the time that our country should be having to experience a reality of not receiving a stimulus check or wanting to receive more than a stimulus check, my answer to that is going and taking out a student loan. Mm -hmm. in, in this reality, then, crisis point, where we have to ensure that in the midst of crisis that we still provide social service in a way that is an upliftment and not going to become a a delayed crisis further down the way and so yeah. that's been part of the conversation having to have with these prospective and returning students who we have not heard from in a long time they stopped that on their journey now they're ready to re-engage oh and where's the financial aid office so i could talk to them about student loans right now is not that time to don't do this to yourself mm -hmm. so responsible borrowing responsible decisions in 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 the midst of crisis and it's easier said than done because the experiences that are happening across the gamut just truly are disheartening. And we're, we're going to be this might we're going to be recovering from this for quite some time. Yes. Uh, and then there will be an impact for quite some time across the gamut, not only for adults, but even our children who are now having experienced virtual education. Yeah. Uh, in many cases, for the very first time, mm -hmm. these are stories and conversations we're going to be having for an entire generation yeah. um, as to the impact and the long term effects about now. But to go to, to back to the conversation at hand, the educating the resources more than ever, our institutions need to stand up crisis opportunities of resource being being provided to students, social services being provided. And at one point in time, I would say, Mike, it was more about those being provided in urban areas that maybe low socioeconomic statuses was where we really saw this. But you got to understand, folks are being hurt and impacted across the gamut. Yeah. Suburban, non-suburban, rural, urban institutions really need to take a look at who they're serving and really getting out there and hearing the voice of their students and saying, okay, based on our students, their needs, based on the opportunities within our communities, based on the resources within our communities. These are the collaborations and the consortiums and the resources that we need to be pairing and putting together in providing our students and prospective students, because together we can climb out of this, we can recover, but the key word is together. Yeah. Um, and so I think that's really what's in my heart, but it, the urgencies really need to be adopted now. The urgencies yeah. needed to, to spike and increase for institutions to be able to serve their students. And there I say, they're former students. If they entrusted you at one point in time to support them on their academic and career pathways, don't forget about them in that moment of need and crisis. So there right. still needs to be resources provided to your former students as well. Yeah, and that makes me think about the, the future of work, which is something I'd love to get your perspective on that, the pathway to 
jobs, some of which are in emerging fields or some of the disruption that you see in San Antonio around industries shifting roles, moving from manufacturing to digital, mm. all these things, you only have these students for a short window of time and they're still going to need to develop skills throughout their lifetime to stay on a career path. How do you get them on a career trajectory to begin with? And then how do you help them really engender that love of learning that will help them continue to grow really beyond whatever post-secondary edu formal education they do to the remainder of, of their professional lives? Yeah, two words that come to mind is intentionality. Mm -hmm. The second word that comes to mind is exposure. And I'll tell you what I mean by that. I was having a conversation not too long ago with someone and, and the context of the conversation was, we have to teach our students, we need our communities to dream. And we want them to dream big. And I, I agree with that somewhat, because in so many cases, individuals don't have the capacity to dream because they're attempting to just survive. Yeah. And if I'm in survival mode, I don't have the mental, emotional capacity to dream. I'm trying to figure out how to make it from one minute to the next. And so there comes the exposure. It is the responsibility of our K-12 systems, especially, and our higher education systems. There we call it experiential learning. And it still is experiential learning in the K-12 space, yeah. but you have more intense time to be able to work in that classroom with that young man, that young woman, to expose them, there goes the, the word, to expose them to what can be their reality, right? Yeah. Again, we go back to that, that, it, that household exposure. We don't know the realities being faced by that young man, that young woman, what they're having to overcome to make their way into the physical and the virtual classroom. We don't yeah. really know that. Uh, and so we need to have an appreciation and a word that I had used previously in our conversation was grace. Yeah. We need to have a sense of grace when working with our students because they're making grand sacrifices to pursue their education to no matter where they are on the spectrum. Now, with that said, the exposures, it, by giving them those career exposures and not just keeping it theoretical, by giving them applied experiences and being able to have conversations and say, hey, you may see them with that grease and those tools, and you may say to yourself, they aren't making enough money, but what you may be surprised is that person with those grease and those tools is making $90,000. Yeah. You've got folks with doctorate degrees that ain't cleared $40,000. Right. We've got to have very real conversations about what's happening here mm -hmm. economically and in the workforce to paint realistic pictures and stop having these conversations about, I'm better than that. You know, you, no one's better than anyone, we all have ways in which we add value mm -hmm. to our communities as a whole. The question really becomes is how can you do it? Yeah. So giving those exposures of workforce, high wage, high demand opportunities to students, giving them those exposures. If you want to go into another field of applied sciences, let's have a conversation. Talk about the career paths associated with that. Again, exposure. Mm -hmm. And then if you want to go the liberal arts route, after I received my associates, I went to a liberal arts institution, learned some amazing things, and then pivoted and my master's towards business. But it's the foundation that was key in terms of analytical skills and being able to decipher and analyze and break down information to be able to provide that in a means that's productive to society as a whole. Liberal arts education is key. I'm not in support of that movement to move away from liberal arts. Yeah. Every concentration serves its role, but as we talk about workforce preparedness, it's key elements, those pieces. And uh, I was watching someone else in their podcast might talk about this, about how it's 
so important that as we build these academic certificates in these programs, especially in the higher ed space, that we still have the workforce component, but you also have the liberal arts component because again, we're focused on productive citizenship. Yeah. So the exposure and then also the intentionality of when you create these pathways, being able to help that individual understand the end in mind, how we create that pathway, putting the resources around them to ensure their completion towards the pathway and being able to reward them along the process. And that's where we get into the conversation about stackable credentials, mm -hmm. which the industry is warming up to. And it certainly needs to do more than warm up to it. It needs to really heat up because yeah. folks need to understand that the workforce wants to employ them. These are going to be transferable skill sets. Why not credential these transferable skill sets on their way to actual degrees? Yeah. And then the other element is connections into industry and the private sector to help I provide that exposure is something that I've heard you talk a lot about. And I know that's something that St. Phillips and organizations like it are, are also doing. Can you talk a bit about how you connect to what's happening in San Antonio and, and the industry that's there and how that's all connected? Yeah, I would say as a whole, the Alamo Colleges, there's five of us here in San Antonio, community colleges that make up the Alamo Colleges. But St. Phillips College, we've been involved uh, with what we call Pathways Leadership Council that allows us to have those direct conversations with industry and to be able to hear what are their needs and being able to have those strategic conversations amongst us. Where do we pivot? Where do we tweak? Where do we embrace new aspects within the learning experience to ensure that students not only leaving with a credential, but they are prepared for the workforce? Yeah. And I hate to say those are two different conversations. Community colleges have always understood that we've got to hybrid those two conversations. However, across the board, that hasn't necessarily been shared amongst higher education. Yeah, makes a lot of sense. Great getting you on. Obviously, there's a lot uh, that you can impart to us. If folks want to track you down, understand where to find what you're doing, what's the best place uh, to go? My website, it's I-T-S-D-R Mordecai, M-O-R-D-E-C-A-I. It's drmordecai.com. And I've had that site up for quite some time. And that's where I house everything. And I look forward to interacting uh, with uh, everyone. Awesome. And then before we let you go, the other thing I'd love to ask uh, my guests is what else out in the world is capturing your attention? We've been going deep on your neck of the woods and where you have the boots on the ground around the community college experience in San Antonio, taking as many steps back as you can. What else is happening in the world around you that is a trend or something of note that you think our listeners might benefit in hearing? I think it's so important. We concluded the census last year, 2020, right? I'm really looking forward to seeing what's going to happen with the results of the census. Because that, as we move forward into the next decade and beyond, is going to help us understand a bit more about where our gaps are, as well as what's going to be happening from a trend standpoint within society and our local communities as a whole. Mm -hmm. So I just want to tell everyone, continue to pay attention. I'm looking forward to seeing those census results academically, economically, social services, you name it, all these things, these pieces, especially now with COVID being this new yeah. reality. Right. It, it's going to give us a great sense of what we need to be doing. And I think that, again, educators, we need to be ready to move, mobilize when those results are released. So that's what has my attention, Mike. Interesting. Amazing insights and perspective from Dr. Mordecai Brownlee at St. Phillips College in San Antonio, part of the Al Alamo Colleges system. Really appreciate uh, you taking the time. Thanks for joining. Thank you, Mike. And for our listeners, uh, if you like what you're hearing, tell a friend, share this episode. 
Get back to us on Twitter at Trending in Ed. Let us know what you think. We'll be back again soon. This is Trending in Education. We'll be right back.